I want to begin by praying. So would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, your testimonies are wonderful. Help our souls to keep them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Turn to us and be gracious to us, Lord, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady our steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over us. Redeem us from man's oppression that we may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon us and teach us your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6, as we continue our journey through this wonderful book of wisdom. As you turn there, I've got a question for you. That is this, why are we here? Why do we gather each week? It's a question we are confronted with every week. We answer every week. Why do we sit and listen for these 35 or 40 minutes? Why do we drive from our homes and gather together, assembling here in this place with no AC? Why? We're not here to be entertained. We're not here to become smarter. We're not here to have our hearts, our ears tickled or our hearts warmed. We are here to be transformed. We are here to be transformed as we give praise to God. We, we gather as witnesses. And, and a witness, they are somebody who says what they see. They say what they have heard. What we've heard is in God's word. And so this we declare. We gather, we listen, we speak, we sing, and we pray so that we might be changed. That's what we're doing here. And that's what Proverbs is all about. Proverbs shows us the wisdom of the transformed life. It shows us how to live according to God's good order, according to God's good design. God has created the world. He has structured the world. He has ordered the world according to wisdom. And Proverbs calls us to live according to that wisdom. This is the path to blessedness, as we've talked about. It's the path to the good life. And our text last week, it ended with a warning. That warning was that God sees all that we do. A man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. And to deny God's good order will only lead to trouble. And so chapter 5, verse 22 says, The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. So if we deny God's good order, if we fail to walk in his ways, there is only one end for us. Because of our great folly, we will be led astray. And as we come to our text today, this is what the father has in mind as he teaches his son. He's concerned about the trouble that we find ourselves in, the trouble that we get ourselves into, the trouble we need to get out of, the trouble we make for ourselves. So here in Proverbs 6, verses 1 through 19, the wisdom of Proverbs comes and guides us in how to deal with trouble, trouble. We've got three simple points. The first one's going to be our three headings, getting into trouble, verses 1 through 5, getting out of trouble, verses 6 through 11, and making trouble, verses 12 through 19. So first, getting into trouble. The father addresses his son who might get into trouble. 
And he addresses a specific situation. Follow along with me, beginning in verse 1. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth. We're going to stop there. Because that tells us the situation the son is in. The trouble the father addresses is a financial trouble brought on through the words of the son, through the commitments that he's made. He is snared and caught in what he has said. What did he say? You may be wondering. Well, he put up security, verse 1 tells us. He gave a pledge for someone else. In financial terms, he has become surety for a debt. He has co-signed a loan. You probably didn't come in here this morning thinking we were going to talk about co-signing loans, but that's what God's Word addresses right here. To co-sign a loan is to put your own finances on the line so that someone else can borrow money. You are agreeing to be responsible for the debt of someone else. Now, why would you do this? Why would anybody do this? Well, you might be asked to co-sign if someone is trying to borrow money who cannot get a loan on their own. Maybe they're too young. Maybe they've made poor financial decisions. Maybe they don't have a steady paycheck. There are various reasons that someone might not be able to get a loan. But regardless of the situation, the lender of the bank thinks that giving this person money is not a great idea. But now, if you're in the picture, taking responsibility for this debt, the bank is okay with it. The uh, United States Federal Trade Commission generally thinks this is not so smart, and they want you to know this. So to co-sign a loan in the United States, you are required to sign a notice which says, in part, it says this, you are being asked to guarantee this debt. Think carefully before you do. If the borrower, borrower doesn't pay the debt, you will have to. Be sure you can afford to pay it if you have to, and that you want to accept this responsibility. The FTC is saying, be, be warned. While the FTC doesn't think this is a great idea, far more significantly, the Bible thinks this is not a great idea. We see this in what the father instructs his son to do if he finds himself in this situation. And before we read verse 3, I do want us to be aware of the full counsel of God. God calls us to be generous. God calls us to be generous to those in need, to be quick to be generous. But this is a distorted form of generosity that Proverbs 6 is addressing. So if you find yourself in this situation, verse 3 says, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. The father sees this as a situation that you must be delivered out of. It's trouble. Something you must be saved from. The situation is that someone else has the rights to your wages. You have given yourself up to a future that you have no control over. So the father urges the son, you must act and act immediately. He says this, then do this. Goes on in verse 3. Go. Hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. The father uses this imagery of, of a gazelle being hunted, a bird being caught, and says, get out of this situation immediately. That's the kind of danger you're in. Yes, you got yourself into this mess through your words. Now, don't delay in getting yourself out of it. 
do something about it now because the danger is, is too great. And so the command, this call is to go, to go quickly, to go immediately, to plead urgently with your neighbor. The, the Hebrew word there, it's, it's like to be a nuisance. Don't give up pestering them about getting out of this situation. The call ultimately is to humble yourself. Admit that you made a mistake. Own your error and ask for relief. This is how you must save yourself. So if you get yourself into this kind of situation, the father urges his son, get out of it right away. Which leads to our second heading. So we talked about getting into trouble. Second, getting out of trouble. The father has provided some instruction for getting out of trouble. Do it humbly. Do it immediately. But maybe the son doesn't get it. But the father's given this instruction. Son doesn't quite understand it. Doesn't obey immediately. I know that probably doesn't apply to the young men here. They always understand instructions the first time, as they are told, right? I mean, I know that, that's me, right? <laughs> no, not so much. So as we continue in Proverbs 6, the father wants to further address getting out of trouble. Perhaps the son has heard the father, and he's responded to him and said, this really isn't that bad of a situation. Or, or the guy I co-signed for is really nice. I'm sure it'll work out fine. No big deal. And so the son doesn't take action. Where in verse 1, the father addresses his pupil as my son. Now the language has shifted as we get to verse 6. The father addresses his pupil as a sluggard. Look with me, beginning in verse 6. We're going to read through verse 8. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. The father paints for this pupil a, a picture as he looks to the ant. Now a sluggard, a sluggard is a lazy person. And I like in English how this word does sound like slug. Slugs are pretty disgusting. They're slimy, they're slow. Uh, just a couple days ago, I was watering some bushes in our backyard by our patio, and there was a slug. And I just watched the slug, and they were just disgusting. And I knew the slug was moving because I could see on our pavers that like, it was further along, but I could not actually see the slug moving. It was so slow. And they just ooze along, right? oozing as they ever so slowly go along. Don't be a slug. Don't be like a slug. Don't be a sluggard. But instead of giving a direct command, like I just did, don't be a slug, don't be a sluggard, the father begins with an example. He shows himself to be a wise teacher in giving example. Oftentimes it's better to teach with stories, to use our imaginations as we call for action, call for obedience. And I just want to brief aside, God has made our minds with the remarkable ability to tell and hear, to understand and experience stories. God's blessed humanity with this capacity to, to, in one sense, live through stories. And as we hear stories, we can put ourselves in them. We can experience the emotion of them. And this is entirely unique to image bearers of God. Think about that. Animals don't tell stories. 
They aren't acting out dramatic scenes for one another. You're not going to like go on a hike and stumble into a, I don't know what, a herd of deer telling stories to one another. Like, it doesn't happen. This is how God made us. Humans, those made in God's image, are the storytelling, story-understanding creatures. This is how God has made us, so this is how God teaches us. Think about your Bible, all right? Not only is the Bible one big story, think about how much of your Bible is made up of stories. About half of the Bible is, is, is stories, telling stories. A significant portion of our Bible is speaking of the history of Israel, telling the story of Israel. Far more is spent on the story of Israel than on telling the story of the early church. Why is that? It's because we learn through stories. Our imaginations are shaped through stories. In many ways, we learn to live through stories. Through these stories, we learn that God is one way and not another. We learn that he created all things, that he owns all things, that he sustains all things, and we learn how he does all those things through stories. Rather than being given just a definition of, of God being love, we see through stories that God is faithful that he is committed to his word, that he is merciful and patient with his people. As those who follow God, our minds and imaginations should be shaped by the stories of the Bible. We should see through biblical lenses, and, and those lenses are shaped through stories that we read in Scripture. Now, I belabor this point because we live in a culture that is awash with stories. We are storytelling creatures, storytelling people. And so stories are told all the time. Stories about what the good life should look like. Stories about what ha pursuing happiness means. And we see these in movies. We see it presented in social media, on TV. You see it in your community. You see it in advertisements. All around us, stories are being told. I, mean, you, I studied business in college, and in every marketing class, they talked about telling these stories. It could be a print ad, a half-page print ad. You're telling a story. A TV commercial, 30-second spot. You're telling a story. Stories are everywhere. May our minds, may our imaginations be shaped by the stories of Scripture. And so that's what the Father is doing here. He wants his pupil to learn through his imagination. And so he says, go to the ant. Look at how God has created the world, even down to its smallest details. Look at this ant. Yes, you could crush this ant. Yes, you are about 750 times taller than this ant. Which, I mean, think about that for a second. An ant, your human is 750 times taller. If I was an ant, and I stood next to the largest, the tallest building in the world. All right, got that picture in your mind? Think about the tallest building you've ever been next to. I've been next to the tallest building in the world, Burj Khalifa in Dubai. 2,722 feet high. And I mean, standing next to it, it reaches up through the clouds. You cannot see the top of it. If I was an ant, a human would be like almost twice as tall as the tallest building in the world. That's the, that's the difference in size. And so the father teaches the pupil this humbling lesson. Look at this tiny, tiny thing. He's got something to teach you, this ant. The father tells the sluggard, go to the ant, that tiniest of creatures that has something to teach you about your life. And there are two lessons that he wants 
his pupil, this sluggard, to learn from this ant. First, the ant takes initiative. The ant doesn't need to be told what to do. She just does it. The ant works without a mom saying to clean up what you got out. Doesn't need to be told to make its bed, to set the table. Just does it. God has created ants to just do the work without being told, without any chief, officer, or ruler, without a boss looking over their shoulder, without a sales target or a business plan. They just do the work that's in front of them. They do the work that God has given them to do. No delay, no excuses. The father says, look to the ant. Look at how she works. Take initiative like she does. So the ant takes initiative. And then the father gives us the second lesson of the ant. The ant not only takes initiative, but the ant prepares for the future. She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in the harvest. God has made the ant to know what's coming. She knows the long winter ahead. She knows that to survive, she needs to store up food now for later. She knows she needs to work today for tomorrow. So now is the time to work. It is summer, it is harvest, and so what does the ant do? The ant works. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for every one of us. One way or another, there is a winter ahead. Trouble is coming. It could be a financial trouble. It could be a health issue. It could be a relational conflict or fracture. It could be the death of a loved one. Winter will come. Just like winter comes every year. Winter will come in your life. Trouble will come. Are you preparing for it now? As I was studying this and, and thinking on this, meditating on it, I, I, my mind was brought to Marilyn Malaman. She had no idea about this winter season that she is in now. But she faithfully prepared for it. She pursued the Lord in prayer. She stored up God's word in her heart. She built her life upon the solid rock of the promises of God. And when the storm has come, though she is afflicted, she is not crushed. Though she is perplexed, she's not driven to despair. She has not lost heart because she has by God's grace, prepared for this season. She's been looking to the future, looking and living not for the things that are seen, but for the things that are unseen, to those things that are eternal. So may we be the same way. Are you preparing for your future? Are you living for that which is eternal and everlasting? Or are you like the sluggard, living for temporary and fleeting moments of comfort and ease? You see, the sluggard is not in danger because they're not aware. They're in danger because they make excuses. They're in danger because they delay. They procrastinate. Work must be done. Action must be taken. But the sluggard just lies there. So the father asks in verse 9, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? The slugger doesn't want to give an answer to these questions. It's too much commitment. I want to keep my options open. Don't bother me. I'm not sure. I'm just going to stay here a little while longer. Yes, the sluggard loves his sleep, but it's not a sleep that comes after a hard day's work. That kind of sleep is a gift from God. God gives to his beloved this gift of sleep. The sleep that the sluggard loves is a sleep that avoids work. 
The sluggard stays in bed because he knows if he gets out of bed, there's work to be done. And so he continues to lie there. But the father responds with a stern warning to the one who fails to do the work to get out of trouble, to prepare for trouble. Look at verses 10 and 11. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. The sluggard lies there in bed. It's not that big of a deal. You start to think, I can take my time. You may think your, your parents or your boss or your conscience, they're all making a much bigger deal out of this than they need to. And so the sluggard procrastinates a little bit more, a little bit more, a little rest, a little sleep. One commentator says, sleep is to the sluggard what narcotics are to an addict, the means of escaping the world. The sluggard craves ever more of his sleep to escape the hard work of living. And then he says this, the sluggard loses by small surrenders. That little phrase, small surrenders, jumped out at me. He doesn't outright refuse the call to work, the call to obey, the call to pursue God. He just delays it. In his lying down, he lies to himself. Derek Kidner writes, he, he deceives himself by the smallness of his surrenders. So by inches and minutes, his opportunity slips away. So, young man or young woman, are you deceiving yourself by the smallness of your surrenders? This applies to old men and old women too. Are you deceiving yourself by the smallness of your surrenders? Not that big of a deal. I think for most of us adults, our small surrenders take place with our phones in our hands. Just a little bit longer checking email when we could be spending more time reading and meditating on Scripture. Eh, just a little bit longer checking social media while we could be giving our time and our attention to our kids and our spouse and those around us. The Father does not mince His words. These small surrenders, they seem small in the moment. A little a little sleep, a little slumber, eh, just a little folding of the hands, just a little one. These small surrenders result in poverty, in despair, and it will happen suddenly. You think you have time, you think you can do it later, but the Father warns and implores us, act now, respond now. I've already brought this up in, in the context of this proverb series. I'll probably bring it up again because I'm reminded so much of my younger years as I read Proverbs. I made so many small surrenders when I was 12, 13, 14, 15. Small surrenders. I've, I can do it later. It's no big deal. And these small surrenders lead to very, very big consequences. So the father warns. Don't give in to these small surrenders. Respond now. If you fail to act, if you fail to take initiative, if you fail to prepare for the future, then you're a worthless person, good for nothing, a wicked man, a trouble maker. And this is the third section of our text. We looked at getting into trouble, second, getting out of trouble, third, making trouble, making trouble, verses 12 through 19. This third category is far more serious. These individuals are not even given a warning. So in the first section, the father is warning his son. You're in this trouble, this is how you get out of it. 
In the second section, you haven't gotten out of your trouble, you need to get out of your trouble. Do something. The third section, the father doesn't even address the person. He just talks about them. Verse 12, a worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Sounds like the kind of guy you want to hang out with. Not at all. Not at all. The father points to this person and is warning his pupil about this person. This worthless person, this troublemaker, is one who is employing every part of their body in the service of seeking to overthrow and undermine God's good order, God's good design. Did you see that? The father almost seems to contrast this person with the sluggard. While the sluggard was not motivated to take action, the worthless person gives every part of themselves over to evil. So they wink with their eye. They use their eyes to send sinister messages. We, we hear wink and we think, oh, kind of playful. Like, that's nice. That, that's not what this means. This is malicious, nefarious. He uses his eyes to bring others into his evil plans behind the backs of others. He conspires with others with his feet and his hands. He instructs others in his evil ways, pointing them to act. From the top of his body, his eyes, to the very bottom of it, his feet, all that he does is meant to cause trouble. Even the words that he uses, they aren't straight. He lies, he deceives, he's a fraud. But all of these actions proceed from his heart, from a perverted heart that devises evil. And, and everywhere in Proverbs, we, we see the heart behind everything, the importance of the heart. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. It's from what's inside of us that our actions come. The worthless person is a man of Noah's time. And if you remember back when at Noah's time, before Noah's building the ark, the Lord looks on the earth. And he saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Same phrase that's used here. But all of this plotting... All of this evil, all of this stirring up trouble and sowing discord doesn't result just in the destruction of others, but in the destruction of himself. So the father says in verse 15, therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment he will be broken beyond healing. The wicked man intends to overthrow God's good order, but these acts only result in his own overthrow. Once again, Proverbs teaches us that there is a direct connection between what we do and where we end up, between present acts and our future state. It was true then, it's true today, between our deeds and our destiny. And wisdom calls out and says there are only two ways to live, only, only two choices. And we lie to ourselves when we think we can have life both ways. We can have God and the world. We can live for God and we can live for ourselves. But we cannot have it both ways. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn which shines brighter and brighter until full day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. One path is the path to life. The other path is the path to certain death. And God is not mocked. 
The father then summarizes this teaching with this brief poem which speaks of the things that the Lord hates. It takes the form of a list. It's a list of six things plus one, a form that's meant to highlight, especially the last item on the list. And when we come to verse 16, we're going to read this, this 16 to 19 in just a moment. But when we see there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, our ears should perk up. This is a big deal. Oh, these are things God hates? Oh, let me pay attention. So let us pay attention to those things which God hates. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. There are various things going on in this poem. There's a, there's a complexity and a beauty to the poetry here that we can't cover all of. I want to highlight a few things. One is just as we have seen, the worthless person devotes their whole body to evil. And so there are all these mentions of what different body parts are doing. Another thing that happens in a list of seven, and this is oftentimes in Hebrew poetry, it's presented as a chiasm. And a chiasm is a form of poetry where you have a part at the beginning and a part at the end that have similarities, and then you work your way in, similarities, and then the main point, the big deal that we should focus on is right in the middle. So you see some of that going on. And the third thing I mentioned already is this list, six plus one, meant to highlight the last thing. All of these things are going on in this, these few verses. And so I want us to look at it first by kind of looking at that chiasm. So the first thing, what does God hate? God hates haughty eyes. And at the end, one who sows discord among brothers. These things are related. To say that God hates anything means that God stands opposed to these things. And he brings consequences upon these things. God detests these things. They are an abomination to him. There is no place in God's presence for any of these things. There's no room for unrighteousness in the presence of a holy God. None. So haughty eyes, one who sows discord. This is arrogance. It's pride. It's having a lofty view of yourself, thinking that you are better than others. It's Pharaoh exalting himself over God's people and not letting them go. It's Nebuchadnezzar walking on the roof of his royal palace and declaring, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? These men had haughty eyes, which looked against God's good order. God hates this. And these men suffered significant consequences. They were destroyed because of it. So it is with everyone who has haughty eyes. You will be judged. And instead of haughty eyes, our prayer is that God would give us humility. The humility of those being poor in spirit, those who are humble and contrite in spirit, who tremble at his word. The next thing we see is a lying tongue, and at the end, a false witness who breathes out lies. God hates, God hates falsehood of every kind. He hates a lying tongue. He hates big lies. He hates small lies. He hates white lies. God hates a lying tongue. When Elisha refused a gift from Naaman after he healed him of his leprosy, 
Elisha's servant, Gehazi. He ran after Naaman, and he asked for that gift for himself. And when Elisha asked him where he went, Gehazi lied, saying, your servant went nowhere. He lied, and Naaman's leprosy clung to him for the rest of his days. God hates a lying tongue. When Ananias and Sapphira came to Peter and told him that they were there to give all of the proceeds from the sale of their property to the church, even though they had kept some for themselves. Do you know what happened to them? They lied and they were immediately struck down dead. God hates a lying tongue. I'm using these examples from Scripture because I want our imaginations to be shaped by what the Bible presents to us. The third layer, as we get closer to the center, hands that shed innocent blood, feet that make haste to run to evil. God loves life. He gives the gift of life. And he loves the lives of the innocent. So when Cain kills his brother Abel, he is cursed. Manasseh, king of Judah, is opposed and destroyed because he shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. God hates the shedding of innocent blood. And then at the center of this list, the fourth item of seven is the center of man, the heart. A heart that devises wicked plans. Again, all of our actions proceed from our heart. And God hates those who plan evil, those who plot and plan wickedness. He hates Haman, who conspired to destroy Mordecai and all the people of God. Haman held God's people in derision, and he set, him, them, he set himself against them. He had haughty eyes, only to himself be destroyed. God hates the conspiring of Judas and the chief priests and Pharisees and Sadducees. The conspiring of Judas, which, which profited from betrayal, who exchanged the life of Jesus for a little bit of silver. God hates hearts that devise wicked plans. Again, the flow of this poem, the six plus one, is meant to highlight the devastating effects that the troublemaker has on a community. A troublemaker destroys not only himself, but sows discord. That, that phrase came up in verse 14 as well. One who sows discord. Destruction comes on those around him, on those closest to him. And God hates this. Now there's one, one particular and tragic form of discord that I see being sown across the church today in many, in many ways. I don't, it, not, not here, but I think it's something we've, many of us have seen and experienced. It comes through the influence and teaching of those who seem wise and insightful. They seem sharp as they dutifully uncover wrong and expose injustice. And this type of so-called insight takes on the label often of deconstruction. It encourages especially young people, especially the simple, Look back at your past. Evaluate and assess what you've experienced. Evaluate and assess what you might have missed. Ask questions. Keep asking questions. Ask every question that comes to mind. But these voices, they don't talk straight. They ask a lot of questions but provide very few answers. One theologian says their influence tends to snowball into a community-collapsing movement. A community-collapsing movement that raises with no thought of rebuilding. 
God hates this. God hates those who sow discord among brothers, who tear down what God is building. And may God give us and our young people grace to see through the lies disguised as wisdom. These lies that are told around us, the discord that is being sown in the church. This is a big way this happens. But there are also countless small ways this happens. Sowing discord happens in our workplaces, in our communities, in our church, in our homes, among our families. We sow discord. So through our pride, through our selfishness, through our self-centeredness, we plant seeds of relationship destruction. We provoke needlessly. We interject in places we don't need to interject. We criticize, we tear down, we incite anger in one another. Proverbs is going to talk more about this as we go. God hates those who sow discord. And God is not mocked in any of this. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. God hates these things. And if we take an honest look at our hearts and our decisions and our actions, we're all implicated in all of this. We can be counted as worthless people because of the things that we've done, the things that we have said. So what hope do we have? We have hope in Jesus Christ. Can't find hope inside of us, but we can find hope in him. Though we are haughty, arrogant, and proud, though we are selfish, though we sow discord, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The good news for us is that while we cannot be the guarantee for anyone's debt, Jesus Christ has become the guarantee for our debt. He has become our surety. He faced our trouble. He took on our shame. He bore our griefs. He was stricken in our place. The calamity that comes upon the wicked man, upon the sluggard, was put upon Jesus. And now you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him. If you but turn and trust in him, put your faith in him, you can have all of your sins forgiven, all of your trespasses covered. Jesus has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Our claim, our hope, our joy is found in looking to Jesus, in hoping in Jesus. And as we hope in him, as we are adopted into God's family, as we are called sons in Jesus Christ, and, and sons specifically because Jesus Christ is the son and we get his inheritance. So male or female, there's a sense in which our identity in Christ is as sons. Meaning we get the full inheritance. All that Jesus Christ has, we receive. What a gift that is. And because we've received that, now we get to walk in the goodness of life in him. Amen. Now we get to pursue righteousness. Pursue humility. Pursue selflessness, serving one another, loving one another, being kind toward one another. We do these things not to earn 
a rightful standing before God. We cannot do that. Jesus Christ has done it for us, but because of who we are now are in him, let us walk in the goodness of the life we have in him. May God give us grace to honor and follow him. Would you pray with me? Father, Proverbs confronts us with our depravity and our hopelessness in ourselves. But we thank you for the promise of life in Jesus. Thank you that he indeed has fully paid for all our sins with his precious blood. And because of what he has done, Lord, help us. Help us to live life according to your word. Help us to walk in the light of your law. Help us to love your precepts, your statutes, as we walk in the good of them. Thank you for the good order of life that you have given, that we see the wisdom that's revealed in this book. Would you continue to transform us into your image for your glory? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.